Well, good morning and welcome to Christ Community. My name is Bill Gorman. I'm the campus pastor here, and it's great to have each one of you with us. Um, We're so grateful that you're here, especially if this is your first time or if you're just checking out churches. Uh, I know that that is not an an easy thing to do. When I was on sabbatical uh, a while back, I had the experience of visiting new churches uh, often every week and just remembered what it's like to walk into a new church for the first time where you don't know anyone. So if you did that this morning, thank you uh, for doing that. And hopefully you were greeted and you felt welcomed and that this is a place that cares about you and wants to know you. Um, We're really glad that you're here. And this morning as we prepare to continue in in the series that we're in, I would love to begin by asking God to be um, working in us uh, as we look at his word. So let's do that now. Our Lord and our God, now as we hear your word, fill us with your spirit. Soften our hearts that we may delight in your presence. Sharpen our minds that we may discern your truth. And shape our wills that we may desire your ways. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, as John uh, mentioned earlier in the service, we are in the middle of a series looking at a little book in the middle of the Old Testament. The Old Testament is the the first big part of the Bible. The Bible is divided up into two big chunks, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Daniel is a little book in the Old Testament. And we've been looking at this book, and, and really the purpose of the book of Daniel is to show us that God's people can not only survive, but even thrive in the midst of conscience agonizing, freedom confining, and as we'll see this morning, even life imperiling circumstances. That God's people, they they can not only just survive, but they can actually thrive in in places where their their consciences are constantly being tested, where their freedom is being confined, where even their life is being imperiled. And, And again and again, we see in the book of Daniel, this big theme occur over and over, which is that God is in control. That God is in control. He is sovereign in and over the insanity of a world that's in rebellion against Him. Look for that as we go through this book. That God is in control. He's sovereign in and over a world that has rebelled against Him. And today we're in Daniel chapter 2. And I'd encourage you to follow along in your Bibles as we look at this long chapter. That's why we didn't actually read it ahead of time. There's 49 verses. It's a long chapter. But turn there if you have a Bible or grab one of the ones in the, in the pew. Um, it's on page 737 if you want to use the Bible in the pew. Or if you have a smartphone, just pull up a web browser. If you type in Dan 2, actually should just come right up in Google. You can click on a link and read the whole chapter there on your, on your phone. So however you want to do that, I encourage you to follow along in the text this morning. Daniel chapter 2. It's a long chapter, but it tells a single episode. And this morning I want to tell you the story of Daniel chapter 2. And it starts with a dream. Have you ever had one of those dreams? One of those dreams that it, it thrusts you out of sleep, upright in bed, sweating, breathing hard, heart pounding, panicked, relieved at last. Oh, it was only a dream. It was only a dream. 
But then as you put your head back down on the pillow and try to fall back asleep, the images of the dream, how, how real it felt, just stick with you. Waves of anxiety keep crashing over you until you feel like you're drowning. Have you ever had that experience? Maybe, maybe you haven't, but you can imagine, right? What it would be like to have a dream that just shakes you and, and you can't quite maybe remember all of it, but it just keeps worrying you. Well, this is where Nebuchadnezzar is at as we begin this story this morning. Nebuchadnezzar, he's the ruler of the Babylonian Empire, which at this time is the ruler of the known world. He's in charge of all of the known world. He's the most powerful human being on the planet. He conquered uh, Israel, Judah, God's people. He's deported their best and brightest, brought them to his capital city of Babylon to enculturate them and make them a part of his leadership structure, working in his palace court. And that's how Daniel and his friends, that's how they end up here in Babylon, working in the court of King Nebuchadnezzar. And on this night, Nebuchadnezzar wakes up terrified. A dream shook him to the core. And you have to know, in this cultural context, dreams are more than just sort of the result of of last night's dinner or that episode of The Walking Dead that you watched before you went to bed way too late. That dreams were seen as revelatory that they were seen as the way that, that gods or God communicated to especially rulers, and they had significance beyond just being images that you saw in your sleep. They were signs, signs of things to come. And Nebuchadnezzar has this dream, and it terrifies him. And so he calls in his team, his dream experts, his advisors, the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, the text says. It, And I know you hear that language of magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and it sounds strange, right? I mean, you kind of expect Dumbledore, Gandalf to sort of be in a mix of of a list with that kind of category, right? But, But this is typical in the ancient world, because in the ancient world, you don't have sort of secular politics, and then you have kind of religion and mysticism. All of this is wrapped up together, right? There isn't a secular government. This politics, religion, it's all mixed in together, And so when Nebuchadnezzar calls these advisors, the sorcerers, magicians, enchanters, this isn't people who are doing tarot card readings down in Westport somewhere. These are the best and brightest, the most ambitious, the best educated people of the day. This was Nebuchadnezzar's National Security Council. This is his cabinet. These are his best advisors. And so the team shows up, and they've done this before, and they say, tell us the dream, king, and we'll tell you what it means. But Nebuchadnezzar says, I don't think so. I've got a better idea for you. You tell me what I dreamed, and then tell me what it means. Oh, and and if you decide you're not going to do that, no big deal. I'm just going to take every one of you, rip off your arms and your legs, and while you're dying, I'll do the same thing to your houses and your families. But you know, I'm, I'm reasonable, hear me out. So if, but if you do tell me, I'll reward you greatly. So Now, why does he do this? Why does he make them tell him the dream? Now, there's a couple possibilities here. Maybe he doesn't remember the dream. Have you ever had that happen? You're going to wake up and you kind of have a fuzzy recollection, but you don't really remember the dream. Maybe that's it. That's possible. But also you have to understand that Nebuchadnezzar 
he's generally just a little insane. He's kind of one of these people who's just always tottering on that line between absolute genius and just total insanity. And you're never sure if he's gonna, which way he's going to fall. More on that in, in a couple of weeks. But these advisors, they're starting to freak out a little bit and they reply a second time, King, just tell us the dream and we'll absolutely give you the interpretation, what it means. And Nebuchadnezzar says, no, you're just stalling for time now. I can't trust any of you. You, you could just make up an, inter- an interpretation. How am I going to know that it's true? The only way I can know you're telling the truth is if you tell me the dream and what it means. And then they reply in verse 10, there is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand, for, for no great or powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean ever. The thing that the king asks is too difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Too bad, said Nebuchadnezzar. That's my demand. And with that, he orders the execution of every wise man in Babylon, which included Daniel and his friends. Even though they weren't on duty, they weren't on call that night, they hadn't showed up, they were, must have had the night off, but they're included in all of the wise men. This is why I think actually, it's not just that Nebuchadnezzar can't remember the dream, but he's actually a little insane, because this is not a, a far-sighted view. He's killing off his entire advisory staff. It's not a rational thing to do. So in the middle of the night, there's a pounding at Daniel's door. The king didn't waste any time getting the executioners on their task. Daniel opens the door and he's face to face with the captain of the king's guard there with an execution order. It's probably a guy, this captain of the guard, who Daniel knew and saw on a regular basis his work in the palace, right? It'd be like the head of the secret service going to kill a West Wing staffer. And in that moment, though, Daniel, he doesn't panic. Instead, the text tells us that he responded with wisdom and prudence, wisdom and tact, discretion. Look at verse 14 if you're following along there in chapter 2. It says, Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, Why is the decree of the, the, decree of the king so urgent? Why, why do you have to kill me right now? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint a time that he might show the interpretation to the dream. So rather than trying to escape, Daniel wants to go straight to Nebuchadnezzar, which is really a pretty gutsy move in this moment because at one level, right, he doesn't have a lot to lose. He's already has an execution order with his name on it. But, but Nebuchadnezzar, the Assyrians, then followed by Babylon, they were like experts at making death incredibly painful. And so Daniel, he's inviting torture as well as execution by seeking an audience with the king, a king who has already made up his mind to kill Daniel. The door closes, Arioch leaves. Daniel has just agreed to tell the dream to the king. But Daniel doesn't know the dream. 
He doesn't know its meaning any more than any of the other wise men did. So he goes back to his dorm, gathers his three closest friends, and they seek the mercy of God in heaven, pleading that they and the others would be spared. Now Daniel, he's studied all the same texts as the other advisors had that he spent three years doing. He was in training, learning all of the literature and wisdom of the Babylonians, but Daniel knew the God in heaven. And that very night, we don't know how it happens, but God reveals to Daniel the dream. He gives Daniel the same vision that Nebuchadnezzar had. All of it, the whole thing. And and all of a sudden, it makes sense. Daniel knows, of course, Nebuchadnezzar has lost his head. If this is what the dream is, then of course, he's terrified. And with that dream still fresh in his mind, even before going to the king, Daniel praises the God of heaven with his friends. Again, if you're following along, look at verse 20. This is one of those amazing prayers that's preserved for us in Scripture. It's a model prayer for us in many ways. It's a beautiful prayer. This Look at verse 20. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, Daniel says, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise, knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and might and have made known to me what we asked of you. You have made known to us the king's matter. After they pray, Daniel begins to make his way to the palace, into the throne room with King Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel walks in approaching the anxious, on-the-edge king with confidence and respect, with humility and boldness. Here's how the 17th century painter Mattiai Preti imagined the scene. The king immediately asked, can you do this, Daniel? Can you tell me the dream and its interpretation? And Daniel basically says, no, of course not. No one can do what you're asking. Are you kidding me, King? No one can do this. But, but, there's a God in heaven, and he can do this. He is the source of the dream, and he's shown it to me also, and he's told me what it means, not because I am anything special, Nebuchadnezzar, but because of who he is. And this, King, is what you saw. A statue, massive, bright, A head of gold, chest and arms of silver, middle and thighs of bronze, legs of iron, and then feet of iron and clay. Can you picture this this statue? Nebuchadnezzar could also, he recognized it as what he had seen exactly. Yes, that's it, that's what I saw. Daniel continues, as you stood before it, suddenly there was a stone 
a stone like no other, made without human hands, that soars through the sky and smashes into the statue, and the whole thing crumbles and is turned to dust, and the wind blows away all the dust of what was the statue, so that not even a trace of it can be found. It's just completely, entirely gone. And then that stone sitting there where the statue used to be again starts to grow and grow into a huge mountain and the mountain consumes and becomes and fills the whole earth. Nebuchadnezzar, do you want me to tell you the meaning of this dream? You, O king, you are the king of kings to whom God has given the kingdom, the power, and the glory. You rule over every human and beast and everything. You, Nebuchadnezzar, are the head of gold. But you won't last, and neither will your kingdom. After you will come another, and then another, and then another still. And, and we know from history this is exactly what happens. You have the Babylonians followed by the Medes, the Persians under King Cyrus, and then the Greeks with Alexander the Great, and then the Romans and the, the Caesars after, after and after, conquering and reconquering. If you look at any history of the world, every nation dies at some point. No one of them lasts forever. Rulers come and go. But during that time, Daniel says, these kingdoms, all their power, all their wickedness, they will be turned to dust. All of them blown away by the breeze. But that is not the end. You look all the way at the end of chapter 2 and verse 44. Verse 44 says this, In those days, in the days of those kings, Daniel says, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. You saw the stone, Nebuchadnezzar, that stone that replaces every kingdom, the mountain that never ends, the kingdom that turns every other kingdom to dust. Do we see that stone? The stone that Daniel saw. People of God, people in exile, people without a home, people who have for too long put our hope in the wrong nation. Do you see it? Because this prophecy was made 2,600 years ago, 2,600 years ago. And yeah, it's a little bizarre. But the core of the meaning of that dream, it's just as relevant today in 2016 in Kansas City as it was then. And the heart of this dream, the heart of this text, the message behind it is something that I need so desperately. And some of us won't like it. But what it means for us is clear. And we may not like it because, because the, the, the meaning of it is a little too apocalyptic, a little too doomsday. Or maybe it just sounds a little bit too, Mike, we want to give up. 
But I don't mean it in that way at all. In fact, this vision of the statue is life. It brings hope and confidence and even joy. But here is the message of the dream in one sentence. The message of the dream in one sentence is this. Only one nation lasts forever. Only one nation lasts forever. And it's not Nebuchadnezzar's. It's not yours, Alexander or Caesar. It's not yours, Hitler or Stalin. It's not Babylon or North Korea or ISIS or China. And then praise God, it's, it's not Clinton or Trump. Only one nation lasts forever. And it's, it's not America. And, and, and don't, don't misunderstand me. I love my country. I love this country that God has given us to live in and to enjoy. I don't know if you've ever had the experience of traveling internationally, but if you have, there's always this moment whenever I've traveled overseas and, and that plane lands back in the U.S. and you step out back onto U.S. soil, there's a home. I love this place. But like a divine bowling ball and a statue with feet of clay, even America will someday turn to dust. It will. As, as, her, as heretical, maybe even as treasonous as that sounds, it's true. And it scares me. I hope that doesn't happen until a long time after I'm gone. Again, I love this place. This is my home. But we are not living in the country that we long for. We never have. It's not that we miss some golden period in our history that if we could just get back there or that there's some golden age coming that if we can just get the right laws passed or the right people in office that finally we will be in the country that we were made for. You know, we long for a different country all together. There's only one nation that lasts forever. You see the, the stone, the mountain, the kingdom that Daniel talks about. It's indestructible. It's eternal. It's ever victorious. It belongs to God and yet it's open to all, available to all who would come to Him. And yes, it's 2,600 years later and times have changed, but this ought to be just as encouraging to us as it was to Daniel and his friends back there in Babylon. who were waiting to go home, who knew they weren't where they belonged in Babylon. So how do we wait well? How do we wait well knowing that this place is not our ultimate home? I think we see three observations as we look back at this text that, that kind of rise to the surface about how do we wait well? How do we live well as we live anticipating the place where we will one day be forever? And first is this, if we begin to truly believe that only one nation lasts forever and that it's, it's not ours, then our lives will be characterized by, by longing, not settling. Our lives will be characterized by longing, not settling, that, that we will long for our true homeland and not settle for what we sort of think is as good as it gets here. We will live here as homesick foreigners. We don't belong or blend in. Our loyalty, our identity, it, it's tied up 
there, not here. In the country, the new heavens, the new earth that's to come. So in the midst of it, that means that every grief and sadness that we experience right now, every tear shed, every, every longing, every tragedy is an expression of the longing that we have for the place that we are not yet. And by the same principle, every joy that we experience, every great meal with friends, the birth of a child, every celebration is just a little foretaste, a little taste of something that will come in its fullness. The new country, the new heavens, the new earth, the one nation that lasts forever. I love how the, the author of Hebrews describes this in the New Testament. Looking back on the people of God through the centuries, through all of the suffering and hardship that they've experienced, he writes this. It says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. The desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared for them a city. The question is, have we gotten too comfortable in Babylon? Have we gotten too comfortable in a place where we think that this is as good as it gets? You know, there's lots and lots of incredible blessings that come with living in one of the most prosperous countries ever in the history of the world. Do you realize that's where we live? So many incredible blessings that come with that. But one of the great dangers is thinking that this is as good as it gets or that we're just, just a little bit away from getting as good as it gets. But there's something so much better coming. Have we settled, though? Or do we long for home, believing that the best is yet to come? Now, believing that the best is yet to come, believing that this place is not our home, that we are seeking a new, a better country, doesn't mean that we just cloister ourselves off from the world around us, that we sort of go into a bunker waiting for it to all come crashing down. You know, far from it. It actually, it means the exact opposite. In the meantime, as we wait, we seek the good of where we are in exile. You see, Daniel doesn't, doesn't just hide he genuinely seeks the good of the nation that God has placed in the nation that is actively oppressing him, that destroyed his homeland, that deported him. He seeks the good of that. What's so amazing here is that the reason that Daniel and his friends continue to be promoted into these positions of incredible power is that they're really, really good at their jobs. And we saw that last year. Daniel, it says, is 10 times better than any of the other advisors. Daniel got really good at the things that the people he was serving cared about. Do we know what the people in our city care about, what matters to them? Do we care about being good at those things in our work, in our vocation, in the ways that we serve? Because of this, Daniel 
does not only just serve his own people, the other Jewish exiles, but the flourishing of the whole city of Babylon. And this gives him an unprecedented voice to those who otherwise pretty much despised the God of Israel, didn't want anything to do with him. And also, don't miss that Nebuchadnezzar is the one who has the dream, which it's interesting that God doesn't just go straight to Daniel, because the dream really is kind of meant to be an encouragement to God's people, but God uses this incredibly wicked pagan king in Nebuchadnezzar to reveal this message, which is for God's people, even for us today. 2,600 years God used Nebuchadnezzar to continue to be a voice to give us God's truth. That's common grace. God doesn't write him off. He even uses people like Nebuchadnezzar to accomplish his purposes. But then look at what happens at the end of chapter 2. The wicked king, he falls on his face and he says to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings, a revealer of mysteries. Oh, that more people would do the same, right? One commentator puts it this way. I love this picture. He says, the most powerful pagan in the world has fallen on his face before an enslaved Jew. Do you think that would have happened, though, if Daniel had gloated or whined, or just withdrawn, complained. You know, Daniel was good at his job, humble and respectful at every turn, and that gave him a voice to speak truth and hope. This is a good reminder for us because we may be talking, but the question is, is anyone listening? Have we earned a voice? So do your work well. Speak with gentleness and humility, kindness and civility. Disagree, but with wisdom and patience. Serve in your neighborhood. Get involved in the school. Serve in politics. Join the armed forces, right? I mean, these are careers that are worthwhile. Our country is worth defending, and we need people like Daniel in the military, in the government, right? Serve in those roles. Get to know your neighbors, love the hurting, volunteer, live generously. Jesus called us to be light, be light in the world. One of my favorite services that we do at Christ Community, we do it every year on Christmas Eve. And at the end of the service, we sing Silent Night together. It's how we end the service every year. And as we sing Silent Night, we turn off all the lights And everyone has a candle, and we slowly take the candle, and we light it from the Christ candle, and then we sort of begin to pass the candlelight around the room. And when it it first goes dark, and there's just a few candles flickering, it's dark, it's shadowy, it's scary. But then the light begins to spread, and that kind of dark, shadowy scariness is replaced with a warm glow Warmth of light and joy. And that's what we are in a world of exile and darkness and shadows. That we're the light of warmth and joy and confidence and gentleness and patience. 
self-sacrifice. In the world of people who are giving up, who are disillusioned, who are afraid, there's never been a better time for us to speak hope. You see, a scared world, as we said last week, needs a fearless church. But only if we've earned a voice, only if we're seeking the good of where we are. And here's the last thing. If all of this is true, and what Daniel saw is real, if this vision is really taking place, then we have to take the long view of history. That God's view of history is far more than any one of our 70, 80, 90 years. That's just a tiny sliver, right? Just a tiny sliver. We, we want to think that somehow everything revolves around our moment in time. But one of the most crazy, encouraging things about this text is that the God of heaven, right, he has the audacity to describe four of the most powerful global empires the world has never ever known, Babylon, Persia, Rome, Greece, a a thousand years of human history. He has the audacity to describe all that as a statue and a bowling ball. And the statue just gets knocked over and it's dust and it's gone. America's been around for 240 years. That's just a blip. I mean, Rome was around for for twice as long as that. Well, we're not done yet. I, I hope we're not done for a long time as a country. But as Daniel said, God removes kings and sets up kings. So in other words, don't overestimate the power that we have at the ballot box in November or the power of the right or the left or the media or whoever you want to blame. Yes, we ought to vote. We have, you realize we're some of the rare few people in the human history who have had the opportunity to vote, to influence our leadership. It's an amazing privilege. So vote. Yes, vote. Be informed, but also know that God's the one who removes presidents, who sets up and tears down. He's the one who decides to rule. And if he can use Nebuchadnezzar, We're going to be just fine. We are. Statue and a bowling ball. Knowing that the God of heaven is in charge, God is ruling. David uses that phrase over and over again, the God of heaven. Not the gods of earth, not the idols of our age, the God of heaven. Only he can do this. History is moving in the direction that he wants And so is your life and my life. He is really in control. And so what's Daniel's response to all of this? Well, he prays. And prayer always takes the long view. It always takes the long view of human history. And and it's remarkable, isn't it, that in the story we see God managing empires, but he's also engaged in the little details of Daniel's life. That's the kind of God that we serve. So pray to him. This is where wisdom is found in prayer. Oftentimes, I think we can have this conception that wisdom is merely conceptual, that if we just somehow memorize the book of Proverbs, then we'll be wise. And that's certainly not a a, a bad place to start. But what you see as you study the wisdom literature of the Bible is that wisdom is more than just conceptual, it's relational. One person said, wisdom is not a concept to be mastered, but a relationship to be enjoyed. So do you really pray and ask for wisdom? 
as I was writing this sermon, I was actually struck at a moment. I haven't prayed, really prayed about who to vote for. Have you? I mean, I've read a ton of articles. I've had lots of conversations, done lots of thinking. I realized I actually haven't like sat down and consciously prayed and said, God, would you give me wisdom to know what to do? So often, I do this, I'm sure many of us do this, we sort of just come to the conclusion of what we ought to do, about who to vote for, or any number of things in our lives, and then maybe we kind of say a perfunctory prayer of, God, would you give me wisdom, but really I just mean, would you kind of stamp my decision I've already made? No, pray. Ask for wisdom. Because God... God, have mercy. We need wisdom now more than ever, not just in the election, but in, in the whole of our lives and our vocation and all the challenges we face. We desperately need wisdom, not just concepts or principles, but a relational wisdom that helps us to know what we ought to do. And as we said during the first week of the series, if, if you don't pray, it's because really you probably think deep down somewhere that you still are in control, that you can kind of make things happen. But Daniel prays to the king of heaven. The God who is in heaven, who is the rock. The rock of ages. Jesus is the rock. Jesus is the mountain, the king in the kingdom. And back in verse 10, all the way back in verse 10, do you remember what the enchanters say in their despair? What do they say? Their despair ends like this. Only the gods can do this, Nebuchadnezzar. Only the gods can do this, and their dwelling is not with flesh. Only the gods can do this, and their dwelling is not with flesh. But Daniel says there is a God in heaven, and Jesus, that God in heaven, does come, and he does dwell with us in the flesh. The one true king, the one true God to whom all wisdom and might belongs, the one who changes times and seasons, who removes kings and set up kings, he takes on flesh, becomes fully and truly human, and dies at the hands of of another merely human king. He's buried. A stone has rolled over the entrance. And then three days later, the stone is rolled away and the king of kings rises victoriously, triumphantly from the dead. The king is alive. And he reigns. His is the only kingdom that will last forever. Take hope. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are the king of kings, and your kingdom is the only one that will last forever. Forgive us for when we forget that. When we allow ourselves to be consumed with worry and anxiety and fear. There's lots of things to be afraid of in this world. 
would you help us when we get afraid, when we are worried, when we are anxious, not to, to just churn in our own minds, but to go to you, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the ruler and maker of heaven and earth, to pray and ask for wisdom about what we ought to do. And would you give us great joy in trusting you, even when it's confusing and hard and it doesn't make sense. We pray this in the name that is above every name, the name at which one day every knee will bow. In Jesus' name, amen.